Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. This is a show about breasts and the people who have them, from bras and sexuality to health and everyday life. This is the very breast podcast ever. Hello Breasties, Nadia Figueroa, bra designer and boob aficionado here, and holy bazongas Breasties, it's our 10th episode. I can't believe it. I've loved every step of it, and I can't thank you loyal listeners enough. So this is the part of the episode where I ask you, if you love us, and I know you do, head over to your podcast app. Is it Apple? Spotify? We don't play favorites. And rate, review, and subscribe so that we can keep bringing you more content. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we know there are so many more breasties out there that we haven't met yet. The Very Breast Podcast producer, Alyssa McHugh, and I felt like 10 was a nice, even round number to help end our very first season on. So we're going to take a little break after this episode so we can gear up for an even bigger and better season two. So enjoy your holidays, and we'll see you in the new year. This episode, we'll be taking a hard left turn from our recent topics to talk about something totally different. What some might say our breasts do best, breastfeeding. I know, I know, I've really let my nerd flag fly in these last few episodes and gone really heavy on the science. But today, we're going to talk less about the science of breasts and more about the personal experience of having them and of breastfeeding. This is not going to be a how-to guide on how to breastfeed. It's also not a declaration that breastfeeding is the only way to nurture or bond with your baby. For many reasons, a mother may or may not be willing or able to breastfeed her baby. And thankfully, we live in a day and age where that's a completely viable and safe option. From the time a new mom first gets pregnant, her breasts start to ready themselves for nursing. Those breast changes are actually among the first signs of pregnancy. The breasts and nipples are tender and can ache. The nipples and areola start to get enlarged and even darken in color, and the breasts themselves get bigger and heavier and more veiny as the blood supply increases. So why choose to breastfeed? Well, 
Experts say that any amount of breastfeeding is beneficial for both baby and mom, even if it's only for a short amount of time. For baby, breastfeeding reduces the risk of infections, lowers the risk of some childhood cancers and juvenile diabetes, reduces the occurrence of allergies and eczema, and helps with digestive issues like diarrhea and constipation. Like our guest will tell you later, it's all about the poops with babies, right? Breastfeeding a baby also boosts her immune system because it's one of the chances for a mom to pass her own antibodies to her baby. Breastfed babies tend to get fewer infections and also heal more quickly from infections. Along with mom's antibodies, breast milk contains valuable proteins, fats, sugars, and probiotics that support baby's immune system. And it also cuts the risk of sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS, by about half. And for mom, breastfeeding helps shorten the recovery time after birth, helping the uterus return to its pre-pregnancy size. It's cheaper and sometimes more convenient than formula feeding. Something I also find fascinating is that breastfeeding reduces the risk of breast and ovarian cancer, especially if you breastfeed for more than a year. It's literally because if your breast cells are making milk 24-7, they're too busy to act up. There are also so many psychological benefits for moms who choose to breastfeed. Breastfeeding can help lower mom's inflammation levels, which in turn lowers the risk of heart disease, diabetes, and stress. And surprisingly, some breastfeeding moms say they actually experience better sleep. They fall asleep easier, stay asleep longer, and sleep more deeply. One of the most beautiful aspects of breastfeeding, though, is the bond that occurs between mom and baby while nursing. This happens in large part because of the skin-to-skin contact that happens between them. And most experts say that this bonding in the first few years of life can help lessen social and behavioral problems in the future. It encourages moms to know their baby and recognize their cues and needs. Infants placed in this early skin-to-skin contact within the first hour of birth seem to also interact with their mothers more later. This skin-to-skin contact is so beneficial that the World Health Organization actually recommends encouraging breastfeeding within the first 10 minutes of birth, and when possible, even earlier. Okay, okay, okay. I know, I said I wasn't going to geek out on you guys, but I'm going to throw just a little bit of science in here. So let's dive into one of my favorite topics, breast anatomy. The breast is primarily made of two tissues, fatty tissue, the bouncy stuff, and glandular tissue, the part that makes milk. Milk is made in small clusters of cells called alveoli and then travels down ducts out of the nipple openings. That's right, I said openings, plural. It's not just one hole in the nipple the milk squirts out of there are 15 to 20 openings for milk to flow out of the nipple. Think more showerhead than hose. Remember how I said the nipple and areola actually get darker during pregnancy? There's a theory that this is to make the nipple more visible to baby and help her latch. There are also small bumps on the areola called Montgomery glands. These little bumps create a natural oil that cleans, lubricates, and protects the nipple during breastfeeding. It actually contains an enzyme that kills bacteria. Boobs are freaking amazing. When a baby suckles at a breast, it stimulates tiny nerve endings in the nipple, which causes two hormones to be released, prolactin and oxytocin. Prolactin is the hormone that actually helps make the milk, and oxytocin causes the muscles around the glandular tissue in the breast to contract, which then pushes the milk into the milk ducts and out through the openings in the nipple. Now, oxytocin is a very special hormone. It's sometimes called the love hormone. It's a feel-good hormone that's involved not just in breastfeeding. It lowers stress and anxiety, lowers blood pressure. It can cause muscle contractions like the ones in the uterus during childbirth. And it's also a major player in orgasms. 
It's involved in social relationships, trust, love, and bonding, like the bonding that happens between mommy and baby during breastfeeding. There's a physical reflex that happens when these two hormones are released called the letdown reflex. I kind of think of this reflex as the gate opening to allow the milk to flow. For some women, they actually feel this reflex happen. It can feel like tingling or a feeling of fullness. But for other women, it doesn't feel like anything at all. It can happen two or three times in a feeding. And usually it's more obvious early on in breastfeeding. That letdown reflex can happen not just when a baby suckles. It can happen if a mom hears, sees, or just thinks about her baby, when she uses a breast pump or expresses milk with her hands or just looks at a photo of her baby or hears any baby cry. In some cases, when feeding from one breast, women actually notice milk dripping from the other one. But just like everything else, it's a little different for everybody. Breastfeeding has, of course, been a thing since the beginning of human history. But it doesn't come so easy to every breastfeeding mom. It comes with a whole host of breast issues that aren't so fun to deal with. Some common problems are things like sore and cracked nipples, mastitis and other infections, or engorged breasts that are tight, heavy, and painful. There are also cases where a mom either can't or chooses not to breastfeed. This can happen for a variety of reasons. Maybe mom doesn't produce enough milk. Maybe she had a mastectomy. Maybe baby has trouble latching or it's just too painful for mom. Or her work schedule doesn't allow her to breastfeed according to baby's schedule. Or... Maybe she just chooses to bottle feed or formula feed, and that's fine. Cures for what my sources referred to as quote-unquote lactation failure, and for the record, I hate that phrasing, have been mentioned as early as 1550 BC. The Papyrus Ebers, the earliest known medical encyclopedia, gave a very creative cure for women who had trouble producing milk. Quote, To get a supply of milk in a woman's breast for suckling a child, warm the bones of a swordfish in oil and rub her back with it. Or, let the woman sit cross-legged and eat fragrant bread of souse dura while rubbing the parts with the poppy plant. Dura is a type of sorghum grain, and sousing is, I think, some kind of pickling process, but I'm not 100% sure what part needs to be rubbed with the poppy plant. I'm pretty sure this didn't work, though. What it does indicate, though, is that not being able to lactate has been an issue in all of human history, and humans have come up with some pretty creative solutions. For much of history, though, the solution was the employment of wet nurses. Dating as far back as 2,000 years ago, wet nurses, or women who were hired to breastfeed other women's children, were the primary means of solving this problem. Wet nurses have such a long and fascinating history. I'm planning to dedicate an entire episode just to the history of wet nursing next season, so stay tuned. In the Industrial Revolution, as women entered the workforce and weren't able to breastfeed their babies on a schedule, Many babies were left at home with no one to nurse them, and there was a very high rate of infant death as mothers tried DIY methods of feeding their babies that were either unsanitary or didn't provide the nutrition they needed. Since lactation is a supply and demand situation, there was also the issue of mothers lactating less since they were breastfeeding their babies less. There was even a theory floating around that lactation was a disappearing human process. This is when physicians began to get involved in theorizing on breastfeeding publishing infant care manuals and feeding schedules, and in 1865, this led to the invention of baby formula. The very first baby formula was invented by a chemist named Justus von Liebig and was made of cow's milk, wheat, malt flour, and potassium bicarbonate, which is sort of like baking soda. These days, the alternative to breastfeeding is usually formula. Formula is a catch-all term for substitute milk that is given to newborns and infants in place of natural breast milk. 
There are three main types. Cow milk protein base, which is made from cow's milk that's been altered to be more similar to human breast milk. Soy base, which is great if your baby is intolerant to cow's milk or if you want to keep animal proteins out of her diet. And protein hydrolysate formula, which is easier to digest for babies who can't tolerate the other two types of formula. That last one also happens to be the most expensive type of formula. All three of these formulas are enriched with nutrients and proteins to mimic breast milk and are totally acceptable options to feed babies when breast milk is not an option. But once upon a time, safe formula wasn't available. In the course of human history, everything from donkey's milk to diluted wine, soups, and eggs to suckling directly from animals like goats were used as alternatives to natural breast milk. There are even artifacts of baby bottles found from as early as 800 BC. Whether a mother breastfeeds or formula feeds, as long as she is nourishing and bonding with her baby, either method is a perfectly acceptable way to love her baby. I want to quote Dr. Jacqueline Wolf, professor and author of Don't Kill Your Baby, Public Health and the Decline of Breastfeeding in the 19th and 20th Centuries. Quote, infant feeding creates so much emotion and controversy. Women who are mothers, that tends to be a big part of their identity. We want to perform well. We want to do the best for our children. Infant feeding absolutely is a woman's choice, and there are all kinds of reasons why women choose to feed their babies however they decide to feed their babies. But you can't talk about breastfeeding in the United States without pointing out that every other wealthy country has found a way to accommodate breastfeeding mothers, and usually in the form of a lengthy paid maternity leave. It's very hard for American women to breastfeed, even according to our own medical guidelines, because the social supports are not in place. End quote. Although Dr. Wolf is speaking specifically about breastfeeding, what she's saying, I think, applies to motherhood in general. Mothers want what's best for their babies, and sometimes that's not the easiest thing to give. Society tends to judge women no matter what choice they make. That doesn't make the process and journey of motherhood any easier. Nor is it anyone's right to judge a mother's choice as long as she is caring for and loving her baby. And although it's not always the easiest thing to ask for, sometimes it helps to just have a little help. For this episode, we spoke to April Kerwood, a postpartum doula, lactation consultant, and mom. April is passionate about being a woman who serves other women, and she's the type of person that emanates warmth and makes you excited about what's to come when she speaks to you. Her passion for her profession and for empowering women is just so inspiring. This was actually my first solo interview, and I was a little nervous, but April's approach in conversation reflects her approach to her job. She is warm, comforting, and reserved of any and all judgment. And when she talks to you, she puts you at ease and reminds you, you've got this. Just a few things I took away from my conversation with April that I think are really words to live by. We should all be listening before we speak. Our bodies are doing amazing work. Don't Google all the things. And let's just assume everything's going to be okay until we get information that says otherwise. So snuggle up on your couch, make yourself a warm cup of tea, and enjoy this interview that I promise will give you the warm and fuzzies. Please welcome April Kerwood to the very breast podcast ever. Welcome to the very breast podcast ever. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you say hello to the breasties out there and introduce yourself? Hi, friends. Uh, I am April Kerwood. I am a postpartum doula and certified lactation counselor in Columbus, Ohio. I work for myself. 
uh, and serve families here in Central Ohio doing all sorts of consults. So I do traditional postpartum doula work. I do lactation work. And then most recently this past year, I've just kind of added in. I say, what do you need? And I'll come do it. So um, my life and background have kind of led me lots of ways and um, serving families using that experience, my personal experience, professional experiences um, is just what I've been doing. And I love it. This has been a big year for that. So let's just start at the root of it all. What is a doula? So a doula is just basically a woman that serves other women. And in our culture and country, currently that means women um, either giving birth. uh, It's it's someone who will go with you to your birth place and kind of guide you through um, just that kind of traditional, it goes way back, traditional women supporting women role of kind of walking you through this experience that Um, historically, our country has kind of um, minimized. So we're kind of going back to like, okay, who can we really rely on? Who can we really trust? Who can we lean on? Um, And and who can we bring with us? So there's birth doulas. um, And then there's postpartum doulas who do the same thing, but kind of serve in the fourth trimester, which is after the baby's born in your home. And that's where I specifically work. Um, And I see it as sort of this transition to motherhood for women. I think that birth is um, incredible and important and how you birth definitely dictates what your postpartum period looks like. Um, But it's also longer, I think, than we've given it credit for. This transition from a woman to a mother is huge. And um, meeting women where they are, where they live in their space and for whatever they need, um, I think is really critical um, to our society on, in general and just to the well-being of women and children. So that is what um, where I work. But doulas overall are just, um, you know, someone you grab and put on your team when you go through these transitions of life. So I think that some of our listeners may be familiar with the concept of, of doulas. I've heard it like here and there in yeah. social media recently. But one thing that was new to me was this idea of a postpartum doula. I'd never even heard of it before, um, before I heard of you. And um, I know it's a pretty intensive certification process. There's codes of ethics you have to follow. How exactly do you become a postpartum doula? Well, there's lots of avenues for any kind of doula certification. So um, as we talk about them more and more and more people kind of say, oh, hey, you know, like supporting women, yes. And in this avenue and in this time in their life, absolutely. Um, There's been more certifying agencies. So um, because I was kind of enamored with birth after the the birth of my first son, I could hear some of the the names thrown around um, of like credentialing agencies or certification avenues. So I knew about DONA, which is doulas of North North America. Um, And so I had heard that as like an established role um, or or certifying agency for doulas. Um, But when I've been asked through the course of having my business, you know, what what people should do if they're um, pursuing becoming a doula or certification, it's really very personal, the training you can get. You know, I've seen... um, uh, faith-based training for some doulas be what they want to do. And, and because that's, that, that's how they intend to serve their clients. And those are the clients they intend to serve. Um, I've seen very open, you know, um, uh, I think certifications agencies with lots of emphasis on all populations. So if that is, is important to you and that's who you want to serve, then absolutely seek out that certifying agency. That's going to give you that full, um, scope of who you're going to, 
who you're going to serve. So I think that there's a couple things involved. It, it depends on, you know, your, you can have a way that you want to serve before you even get any education. If you come to doula work and you say, you know, I see my strength as being this, uh, then I would seek out a certification that just validates that. Because if you have a strength and you have a heart to serve, then I wouldn't want to see you talked out of that uh, to serve a different way, just because that's what your certifying agency believes. Uh, so I think that it's such a service and um, kind of uh, mission-oriented work anyway. So finding an agency or an education base that kind of supports your your strengths already is really important. So I, I would never recommend one for someone without sitting with them and saying, hey, what do you believe you're bringing to this profession? Let's find you education and support and information to grow your business with your strengths in mind. And there are more and more of them mm -hmm. um, as, as we go through uh, the years of, of this being a more you know, you, like you, like, just like you said, like a more, uh, normal or not normal, I guess. Normalized. Yeah, yeah. Just as we hear it more and it's thrown around more and we see, meet more people that are doulas and, um, you know, our community of doulas in Columbus is fairly large and, and that's a great credit, mm -hmm. um, to all of us. So I think that finding something that supports what you already have and know as your strengths is really important. And then, um, and then what is their certifying, uh, criteria? What do they want you to do, learn? Um, and then how often do you need to recertify? Because a lot of us just want to do the work, <laughs> you know, we like, okay, so I have the education and I have the fire and I have the passion and I want to make sure that I'm covered in order to do this work. But also, you know, some of these certifying agencies, it's, it's a lot of time and money to keep up your certification, which I believe in because mm -hmm. I think we should be educated and um, somewhat credentialed to do some of the work, you know. Um, but when we talk about what a doula actually does, you'll like, you'll probably hear me say why, why I think that it can be a little um, personal too. But they'll require recertification and recertification fees and all of those things need to be kind of um, factored in before you choose which route you go. So let's talk a little bit about what a doula actually does. Tell me about your process with your clients. Well, it started really organically as far as like this transition. So I am a mother of four and um, I always tell people if I needed a postpartum doula, I mean, I, I think everyone can use a postpartum doula, but the highest amount of need I had for one was with my fourth. I had three other kids that were in school and preschool and he um, struggled to breastfeed. He had a, a lip tie early on. So I had a bout of mastitis breastfeeding him and... Ooh, okay. So a lip tie is a condition where a baby's upper lip is attached to her gums in a way that makes lip movement and latching difficult. A lactation consultant like April might ask to watch a baby feed and check for signs of a lip tie, such as difficulty latching or trouble latching deep enough for feeding, clicking sounds during breastfeeding, spitting out or choking on milk, or cluster feeding, which is feeding with high frequency. For baby, it can lead to poor nutrition and dental issues, and for mom, it can contribute to damage to her nipples, issues with milk supply, or mastitis. It's similar to a tongue tie, where there's an issue with how baby's tongue is connected to the bottom of her mouth. Luckily, usually both of these issues can be fixed with pretty simple outpatient procedures. Life was just really overwhelming in that moment where I'm pumping and we're feeding him um, through alternative methods and I'm finding lactation professionals and doctor's appointments and all these things. And, um, you know, it reminds me a lot when I walk into homes, I, I think 
uh, my work is to create or help create peace in the midst of all this transition. And I don't say chaos because it's not chaos. Babies are welcomed guests into homes. So to say that that then creates chaos um, kind of, kind of, you know, mitigates or minimizes the the truth of it. We know they're coming. It's just that we have unrealistic mm-hmm. expectations about what that's going to look like. So <laughs> they are not the chaos. A lot of times it's our expectations or, um, you know, the dream we had in our head, which I get, you know, mm-hmm. I had it four times too. This is going to look like this. And then it looks a little different and we have to kind of hit the ground running because there is no big pause on that time in our lives. So my process with them is always to remember what it felt like to me in that moment when you know, everything kind of felt like the wheels were coming off and what would I have needed? What would I have wanted? And really, um, I just go in and say, okay, like, where do we find the peace for you in this moment? Mm -hmm. Um, and that is not magically fixing any one thing normally. It's, it's kind of a smoothing out of all the things it's talking about infant biology, what babies really need, not what we've been told they should need. Um, and then realistically looking at this um, birthing person and their recovery and what they need to do that. And so I always say, um, I say balance is bullshit, uh, (laughs) because it's just not true. Like there is not really a good way to balance the needs of a newborn because they just take precedent. It doesn't mean nobody's up. Nobody else's matter. It means that at this given moment, this is what we're doing. And then what we do is check everything else underneath it, make sure it's still getting done, but also we know that this is a brief period of time. So I just kind of go in and say, you know, what feels the worst, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. what feels terrible and, um, and how do we fix that? Because typically moms and families in this transition, especially first time moms, um, have a hard time identifying what's terrible and what's normal, but not meeting their (laughs) expectations. Right. Yeah. Like, like well, nor- normal are- can sometimes be terrible too, if we're being honest. But also they don't know what that is. Yeah. Right. So, you know, this is just, they go, oh, this is so terrible. And I'm like, this is normal baby behavior. I validate and hear, and I see that it feels terrible to you. So what are we needing to change? Is mm-hmm. it that, do you just need to hear that it's normal because you didn't expect that to be normal? Because it is, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of times I'll hear myself saying like, there is nothing that I see that is so alarming you know, in this home, in this moment. And they just go, Oh, okay. Because they feel very isolated by everybody's front page stories and, you know, beautiful scripted, um, you know, this is what's happening in our house. Yes. I mean, we can talk about social media. (laughs) Woof. Um, because like that wasn't a thing when I was having babies and I'm really thankful, um, that I wasn't comparing my reality, uh, to Mm -hmm. everybody else's glossy, uh, you know, front page. So that factors in too. I think sometimes we just kind of, you know, is it terrible? Is it normal? And how do we make it feel less terrible? Because I will always believe them when they say it's terrible. Um, but, but what is that? And, and how do we take everyone into account? Because I want to speak for the baby in the normal behavior, but never to the end of the mother. Mm -hmm. Like this is not about martyrdom. This is not, well, your baby needs this, um, because you are a whole person too. So when I started my work, everybody's like, you love babies. This is so great for you. And I was like, I do, but you know what I really love is I love women and their strength. And I Mm -hmm. love moms and I love them watching, like watching them come into their confidence and their own, um, in a world that keeps telling them they're doing it wrong, but they're not is so amazing for me because 
um, I see it on their, I like, I get emotional about it. I see it switch on their faces from this idea that, you know, is this wrong? Is this bad? Is that, is this right? Um, to no, this is my baby. This is our <laughs> life. I know what I'm doing. I'm really good at this and I can trust myself. And these messages that keep telling me that I'm doing something wrong or what's wrong, <laughs> you know, like, so that's sort of like, the shortest version of the goal of my work in general is to see that switch on their face where they just mm-hmm. go, oh, yeah, I got this. Cause I know they do from the minute I walk in the door, I know they're capable. I fully believe in it. Um, but watching them come to it is what drives me to continue to do the work. Um, you know, listening to you talk now, and even when I was doing my research on you and clicking around your website, I just, <laughs> I feel so much warmth coming from your technique And, um, this may be a little TMI, but my husband and I have been trying to get pregnant for a little while now and the roadblocks and obstacles and successes, failures, it can just be so discouraging, but like listening to you talk now and like reading your, your bio, like it it makes me actually like excited to try to get pregnant again. I love that. There's no such thing as TMI. Also, I get (laughs) pictures. I get pictures of boobs. I like, there is no such thing as CMI and I love it. So um, one thing I really love about your, your whole policy is you mentioned um, support that listens before speaking. And I love that phrase. I I wrote it down earlier and (laughs) there's a lot in that statement. Can you tell me a little more about that approach? I think I, you know, yes, of course. I think I sort of already um, keyed in on it. if I think back of how I like, you know, get real passionate and fired up about what I'm talking about, but it's that walk into the house and I just say, what do you need? And this past year really making the change to, you know, I used to have this list of like postpartum doulas provide light snacks and, you know, do light housework and help you with recovery care and baby care. And all those things are wonderful. And housework. (laughs) Yes. Light housework. Postpartum doulas. Absolutely. Because, you know, we come in from a culture where women are told that we should be able to do it all. Um, so another, you know, I say balance is bullshit. I also say that super mom needs to go, uh, because when we say that we actually are telling women that they shouldn't need help. And I really dislike it. So you can be super because you're doing an excellent job and you love your baby. Um, the best, you are the best mother for your baby. But when we say she's a super mom, it usually is about all the outward things a woman is doing. And in fact, there's nothing into like what's happening in her heart. Like, Mm -hmm. is she driven to do the things she's doing because she wants to, is she doing them because she feels like she has to, does she then not complain because there's no space for her actual voice about what she is feeling. So I could go on about that forever. Um, but the listening, you know, before, uh, speaking is that idea, like what is happening? If someone's saying like, Hey, that lady is a super mom. I know I want to walk up to her and touch her on the shoulder and say, how are you really, you know, like what mm-hmm. is really happening in this space? Um, so over the past year, um, I really just changed the idea of, I'm going to tell you what I offer and you can decide which of these services you want when I come to you. And instead I said, just tell me what you need because you're going to need something. So I just started saying like, you might not know what you're going to need, but you're going to need something. Mm -hmm. You're going to need someone to process your birth with you because it went sideways. And that really affects how we step into motherhood. You're going to need breastfeeding help because it is really uh, challenging to manage this new physical body that we have on top of meeting this brand new human who of course we love, but we don't know. So that's a lot to factor in. You might need help with just the mechanics of like, 
what does my day-to-day look like now? Um, or you might need some hands-on help for, I'm really recovering and, um, you know, I have a partner that can't take a lot of time off or, so it's all of those things. And it's just saying like, what do you need, um, in this moment, uh, mm-hmm. but also trying to educate women that like, it's okay if you need something, um, and you don't have to know what yet, but plan for the fact that this is a giant transition. Um, so the listening before speaking is just really about like, you tell me one, how you're doing, because I really care about that. And then two, how do we make the terrible better? And then how do we make um, the hard easier? How do we do that for you? What Mm -hmm. does it look like for you? So it's really just that. And then I think it comes from a place of like genuinely wanting to know how they feel about all of the things. I think that this concept, this listen before speaking is, is, a principle that applies to so many different mediums. You know, it doesn't have to just be in your line of work. It's something that I think that we should, we should take as just advice for life. I agree. You know? <laughs> yes. Well, I think we all want to be heard and seen, right? I yeah. talk about kids that way. You know, I'm like, sometimes I just talked about a toddler that a client had and um, we really just said, you know, sometimes it's not about making it better in that moment. Like, you know, trying to rationalize with a toddler in the middle of a fit, sometimes you just go, it feels awful, doesn't it? And that's Mm -hmm. all they're trying to say. And as adults, we try to like talk them out of it, right? We go, oh, you're fine. Or, you know, um, and, and I have a, a really, (laughs) I have a really strong feeling tied to people telling me I'm fine. Don't tell (laughs) me how I feel. So (laughs) I feel strongly about that when we talk about kids, because, you know, a kid falls down and we say, oh, you're fine. Right. They didn't lose a limb, but are they really fine? Because it's okay if they're not, it's upsetting Mm -hmm. and allowing them that moment instead of rushing them through it actually gets us a lot further than just the hurry up and go. And, and the hurry up and go is what we do for so many things. Like you just said, so succinctly, like it can be applied to so much. Listen first, what Mm -hmm. do they need to say in that moment? Ouch, that hurt. And then usually they're like, you go, yeah, it did. And then they move on. But if we go, you're fine and try to hurry them through it, they're not. And then they've been um, kind of belittled and and no one deserves that. So I think we all want to be seen. We all want to be heard and how it looks for different ages and stages of us might change, but it's a really basic human. Yeah. hundred percent. So let's talk about breasts. Yes. Let's. (laughs) I feel like our breasts, they take on so much of the brunt of all our life changes. Um, Truth. In your experience personally or with clients that you've seen, how does pregnancy and having a baby affect or change your breasts? Oh my goodness. Well, personally, I would say I have had breasts that are all the different sizes. Um, (laughs) You know, when it comes to being, you know, an early teenager to like an adult to a a pregnant mother, I I always think it was so cute in pregnancy. There's those adorable little pregnant people and they kind of make a B with their body, like the capital B. And it's Mm -hmm. like a little boob for the top B, (laughs) part of the capital B. And then this big belly. And I was like, I was like a D. Like when I was pregnant, it was just like the boobs got so giant. They sat on top of the belly. I was a capital D. Like who are these like capital B women? Because that is not what I look like. They were- You mean like like the shape of a D? I thought you meant like a D cup. Yeah. No, not a teacup. I know I should have clarified because you're broad. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. 
That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O- L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Um, but the, the shape of a capital like D, like the, oh, wow. these women, there's like all these like like sh- like baby showers and you can still mm-hmm. see them periodically like baby shower things. It has like the outline of a woman and she's like a side, side facing pregnant character mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and her breasts are the, you know, the little part of a capital B, like they're smaller. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. her belly is the bottom. And so when I kind of like turned sideways, when I was pregnant with my first son, I'm like, that is not what this looks like. (laughs) This is not. And I just, you know, I gained all this great weight with him. And so these, my breasts were huge. And I remember seeing a friend of mine who I've known since I was a little girl when I was pregnant and she's like, your boobs are giant. And I was like, I know, like they really just grew. (laughs) I didn't notice. (laughs) Yeah. They're just all of me is, is current getting bigger because I'm making this human. Yes. Good, good eyes. Um, so I think that pregnancy and, and especially breastfeeding, but pregnancy and, um, changes so much for us. I think, um, for some of us who have had, um, bigger breasts or like kind of eye catching breasts, I don't know. I don't know how to say it the right way. Like if we got breasts young, like I did, mm-hmm. you know, we kind of got that attention that maybe we didn't want a little sooner. Um, so for some of us that had that experience, having a, a, like a cause to use them feels really good, right? Like this isn't mm-hmm. just for random old guys on the street to, <laughs> to, to turn it. Like, that's not a good feeling when you're young. And, and when you have breasts younger, that happens sooner mm-hmm. and, yep, definitely and does. yeah, it's not okay. So when we have, and that's a personal thing for me. So when, um, I've had that experience. So when I came to having breasts that were then going to be used to feed my child, it was like, cool. Like now they are more than just head turners that I didn't really invite or want in the first place. They're doing this (laughs) amazing work. Um, and I don't think I gave them enough credit through pregnancy. So I would say like first time moms are kind of like, well, look at these things. I have a really sweet close girlfriend who actually just had her baby a few weeks ago. And she's like, look at these things. And she loves them because she was smaller, you know, before pregnancy. And then she gets these, these really full breasts when she's pregnant and breastfeeding. And she is like, look at this, (laughs) you know, and she (laughs) loves that. And that's, so that's a great, like fun part of it for her. Um, so I would say sometimes we haven't paid enough attention to them and, um, and then it kind of comes right, right to the front of us, not to be cute, but like, then we're really aware 
through our pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And we start mm-hmm. thinking about it more like, oh yeah, these like are actually going to do something or I hope they do something or, you know, I plan to use them for mm-hmm. something else after this. Um, so it just kind of starts the thought on our bodies in a new way, which I really love um, because it's less about, uh, oh, well, hopefully it's less about what they look like and more about what they're capable of. And mm-hmm. I like that switch. I love seeing that switch on women. Um, less about the aesthetic, about my body, my body isn't this, or it is too much of this. And, and the shift to really like, what can my body do, which Mm -hmm. is what's so exciting about birth and and breastfeeding and, and using your body to care for children or anything in your life, not just mothers. Um, but really getting that shift in your mindset of like, my body is for me to like live this big, beautiful life, you know, not just to be looked at. So like, Mm -hmm. how am I going to use it? I always mm-hmm. say that I'm like, I'm just going to use it all up. Like, I just want to <laughs> use it all up. So, um, so I think I see that. And I like that. I like that shift a lot when we talk about women's bodies and especially their breasts kind of, what are these going to do now? Like, let's just see. Um, and I, I think I've seen less struggle with that than I've mm-hmm. seen this empowerment, like empowerment of like, can you believe I grew this baby and then I am now feeding it too? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I can totally believe it. It's awesome. Like you're doing so great what are some of the challenges that you find happen to clients? Like what, what would you say that are some obstacles they have to overcome most often when I think it comes the, to breastfeeding the, specifically? Yeah. Breastfeeding specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that really it's the, it's the fear of not having enough milk or so just in the way that I said, it's empowering to say, here's this shift of like using our body instead of just our body being a decoration. Um, and, and the amazing, confidence that comes from accepting that mental shift. Um, but there's also pressure there, right? We just grew this human that takes a lot. Um, and we, we don't give women enough credit for that. Um, what it does to their bodies, like physically, but also just, um, what that, what those transitions look like for every woman, it's not super comfortable. Not every Mm -hmm. woman is like, Oh, I just love being pregnant and that's okay. Um, I would love to see it be from a more organic and genuine place of like, I'm just genuinely uncomfortable instead of it being about what it looks like or what it's supposed to behave like, um, Mm -hmm. in our society in general, but it's okay to have whatever feeling you have, Mm -hmm. but on top of that, growing the human, then the human is born and we have this desire to breastfeed. Um, and it's just an added like, okay, can I do this part now? And that's why I said earlier on birth dictates so much of how we mother. Mm -hmm. Um, because if we have an empowering birth, we are then confident in our babies, our body's ability to, to do all the things. And we kind of step into breastfeeding with more confidence. Mm -hmm. If we had a birth that kind of went sideways, um, we can get that shaken a little bit. Um, the trust that our bodies will do what we ask it, um, to do, ask them to do, uh, gets a little shook. So I think that that takes a little more work. And then it's just the pressure. Like, am I doing it right? Is there enough? Am I making enough? Um, how do I also live my life, um, and enjoy this time with my baby in the midst of this, um, kind of culture that tells us we have to constantly be moving and Mm -hmm. I have to be Mm -hmm. sitting to do this with my boobs out all the time. (laughs) So I would say that most of the time it's like, am I making enough? Am I doing enough? Is this enough, um, for the baby? And that's what about, I get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about some physical challenges you've come across earlier? You mentioned mastitis. Yes. So mastitis is, yeah, it just means milk stasis. So once you have, um, you know, transitioned, you have early 
on, you have colostrum in your breast. So the minute your baby is born, actually at the end of your pregnancy, you have this thick, honey, beautiful milk. It's called colostrum. I like to call it newborn milk. A newborn stomach is itty bitty, about the size of a marble. So they don't really need to eat very much in the beginning. Colostrum is the very first milk a mom produces. It's a concentrated mixture of immune factors, protein, sugar, and fat. And usually baby only drinks a few teaspoons a day. It's usually produced for the first two to five days of birth, and it's considered a newborn superfood. Breasts, man, doing the work. Um, because it's perfectly made for them, for their teeny tiny tummies. It helps them clear out their first poops. And you know, when we have babies, it's all about the poops. Um, everybody starts talking about poop and pee. <laughs> um, so it's perfectly made for them. So this idea that we say you have to wait for your milk to come in um, is kind of uh, misleading because you have colostrum at the end of your pregnancy. And in those early days, what we're actually waiting for is for it to transition. Um, so the challenges in there are not stimulating the breast enough. Um, and then, or, um, which, which is what leads to mastitis. So you're stimulating the breast to release milk. It's move the milk, feed your baby, move your milk, feed your, feed your baby. Mm -hmm. Um, so when we're doing that, uh, it's a system of supply and demand. It turns to supply and demand. So if we skip a feed or we wear a restrictive bra and we have milk um, and we're nursing, we can kind of plug up the ducts, the milk ducts in our breasts that look like a bunch of grapes. And one of them won't clear. And if we mm -hmm. don't get it to clear, it'll be hard and uncomfortable. But if we leave it there, it can turn into mastitis, which is um, basically becomes an infection. Mm -hmm. So we don't want that. So it just means milk stasis, which is milk not moving. Mm -hmm. stuck milk. If you're a toddler, stuck milk. Um, <laughs> but we want to keep it moving and going. So mastitis can happen. It's not the end of your breastfeeding relationship. It's uncomfortable. It's a lot to work through. Um, but it's not the end of anything. Um, it just means that we were kind of ineffectively moving milk from our breasts to our baby. And we need to figure that out. It's the same as plug ducts that can be troubling. Um, a lot of first time moms think they have nipples that aren't going to be conducive to breastfeeding. And that's not necessarily true because babies don't nipple feed, they breastfeed. So they take a whole, um, you know, a, a lot of areola and nipple in their mouth and all the mechanics of that mm -hmm. aren't hindered necessarily by nipples that haven't. Um, seen a lot of baby mouth action. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I think that like the things that we think are challenging are really just the learning this new skill. So there's very few times um, that moms genuinely do not have the capability of making enough milk for their baby, or they have an anatomical structure that prohibits them. And there are so many amazing ways around a lot of those as is. So I always say that I operate under the assumption that everything is going to go well until we get information otherwise, mm -hmm. because I think that our, our, uh, our current mode is always like, but what about this? And what about that? And what about that? And I'm like, well, you know, there's a, a hundred things that we could say could possibly go wrong. Um, but how about we just assume that like, we're going to figure it out as we go and we're going to give ourselves grace and your baby grace, and we're going to see how you do together. And then we're mm -hmm. going to go from there. Um, because I think we already worry enough about all the what ifs. So we're just going to say, we're going to, take the challenges as they come. But, um, mastitis for one and those anatomical changes or uh, challenges. And then, um, just kind of the, the mechanics of getting it rolling in those early days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
So without giving away too many trade secrets, because I know, I know you offer classes. I do. Uh, Let's say you are walking a brand new mom, just had her baby through breastfeeding. What, what's that process like? I, I mean, the funniest thing I think about me, which I said to you before is that it's never just like, here's your baby and here's your boob. I say that all the time to my clients. I'm like, but how I say, okay, but how are you? Um, so really it's just, where is the hard, where is the, where is the, this feels awful. Uh, what is it? Is it actual pain? You know, when you're latching, is it just that you didn't know you would sit down enough, like so much, and that's mm-hmm. frustrating. So really it would be teaching them that one, that what I said earlier, that milk is supply and demand. So if you, your body is doing this really amazing thing, knowing that your baby is on the outside. So your baby is born, you give birth to the placenta, And all of a sudden your body goes, cool, cool. Your baby's on the outside. Let me make milk. And it's just this amazing system. And your baby goes, cool, I'm here. I want to eat. And they're just (laughs) primed for it. So when we look at them and put them to the breast and we continue to do that, we start this, you know, this system where we're working together. And I think that when um, new moms get overwhelmed by all the extra fluff, So I think the very simplest thing now that I'm like talking and I could say a hundred things, um, the very simplest thing I would say to them is just look at your baby, Mm -hmm. just look at your baby and, and look at what your baby genuinely needs and then have faith that you will figure it out. So, um, I think that would be it. I'd be like, just look at your baby. Like there's a lot about the mechanics, you know, that we can work out if it feels a little itchy. Uh, but really just look at your baby, learn when your baby needs you, um, learn what your baby's doing. If that's painful, make an adjustment. I trust you there. Um, you know, teaching, teaching them to, to trust their baby's cues and their responses. I think a lot of times I will get feedback from them about something they learned that I couldn't have seen because I'm not with their baby every day, all day. Mm -hmm. Um, so the very simple act of, you know, sit down every time you go to try you have to look at it like it's practice. It's another chance to get it right. What are some things that you've learned from your clients? Oh my gosh. I don't think we have even close to enough time for that. They teach me so much so often. Um, I think what, um, what mainly they teach me, like I said, is that like, they're just uh, like, I do get super emotional about it. They're just so beautiful. And they all bring something different that is exactly what their baby needs. And it's like, it feels like this great gift that I've been given that like, I get to walk into their house and I get to watch them do this work. So it's like every time there is a new baby in a home and I get to witness that woman mothering that baby, it's completely different. I could have six clients in a row and there would be something different. So they teach me resilience. Um, they teach me vulnerability because they bear that, like they lay themselves out in front of me when I walk in the door, um, so that I can help them. And, and that is just the, the most brave thing I think that we Mm -hmm. can do as humans and especially as women, uh, in, I know I always go back to it, but like in a culture that teaches us, we have to fight each other. Um, it is the most brave to sit in front of another woman who is there with the intention of helping you and really be honest about mm-hmm. what you're feeling, what you're going through. 
um, you know, how, how hard these certain moments are. So they teach me that all the time and they teach me how to better and better listen before I speak, because every time I do that, um, we both become better humans and we get the result that we're working for together. Um, because we're like connected by that ability to just be in that moment and, and kind of do, do the work, but really just acknowledge each other and be present. Um, so they teach me all of those things. They teach me like the greatest attributes that you want to have as a human. That's what they teach me. And then they're younger than me and they teach me about DoorDash and, and wonderful <laughs> things like that. They're like, do you DoorDash? I'm like, no. And I've been in one Uber in my life. Um, because that is just not <laughs> what I do. And I didn't even ride in it for long. It dropped me off at a car. Like it took me from my location <laughs> to a car. Um, but they were like, get in. My girlfriends are so fun, but they're like, get in. You've never done it. I'm like, okay. Um, so they teach me wonderful things like that. They're like, you don't know about this app. And I mean, I think they are why I have Venmo. <laughs> like I wasn't going to have it, but they're like, I'm going to Venmo you. Right. And I'm like, sure, mm-hmm. sure. And they're like, what's Venmo? Um, so they keep me very relevant, but, um, but truthfully, like, honestly, they really just like, they teach me and show me like the most admirable human qualities all the Mm -hmm. time. And do you get to see that bond grow between the, like a new mother and her baby? Is that something that you get to witness? Absolutely. So I think it's, um, this, this like two strangers (laughs) meeting each other. So there's always this meeting and I, when I go in, when there's a brand new baby, I'm like, okay, so does she look like exactly, like, did you see her and say, of course, that's what you look like. Or did you go, who is this? Because I personally have had both experiences. I'm like, what? Um, you know, my oldest son was born and I was like, yep, that's my nose. And oh, penis. Yep. It's a boy. Um, (laughs) because I was checking like, who knows they could have gotten that wrong. But, um, but then my second son was born and I was like, what is this? Like what? (laughs) Uh, so I always ask them, I'm like, you know, is this what you expected and had in your mind? Cause sometimes people are like, this is exactly like, I didn't know that this is exactly what I expected. Or they just go, no, I don't know this little stranger. So there's these moments where they're meeting this new person. And we always talk about, you know, I know you love them, but it's okay that you don't know them yet. Because those two things in adults are really tied. We don't necessarily, like, we don't just love people we don't know. You know, the knowing is how we get to the love. Um, we can love, you know, I love this group of people, you know, like very broad space. But like genuinely this day-to-day um, is is a growing that, mm-hmm. they, you know, that happens as they kind of learn the things together. So absolutely, I see that. Um, I see them bonded from the start, like through this experience. But what I really like, love is the, the confidence when, when I come back after visits and, um, and they tell me, well, he likes this or he really doesn't like this. And I get to point out to them, I'm like, look how well, you know, your baby already, you know, and they just get this look like, yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I do. You know, like, I'm like, what is this one arm swaddle we're doing? And they're like, he doesn't like it when we do it in any other way. And this is what we got. And I'm like, perfect. Like, this is great. Like you guys, is that like, um, is that like the moment when you step away and you're like, my job here is done. That's the best part. So (laughs) I always say my job is to like work myself out of a job. And I said that with a client the other day. And I said, I don't, I don't have any desire, you know, to be in your home and in your space for hours and hours on end. I believe in your ability to parent your baby. Um, I just know that it's really noisy outside the walls of your house. And so Mm -hmm. if I can help you muffle that and really focus on your needs, how you meet your needs, and then making sure that you like 
once you step in your door, there is peace. I always say that I'm like, what is going to create the peace in here in the midst of this transition? Because perfection is never my goal, but -hmm. peace can be, Mm -hmm. you can be peaceful and it not be perfect. Um, so you feel like what we do. Do you feel like breastfeeding moms are, are fed a lot of misinformation? Like, are there any myths oh. you want to debunk? <laughs> um, yes. So tons and tons, tons. So one that I think is huge because I have girlfriends who are so much fun um, is this pump and dump. Pump and dump is huge because, you know, um, like we, we can't have that for the baby. And so we get all worked up in like dumping breast milk. And um, I just always say, I'm like, okay, if you're not, if, if you could drive a car, if you're not inebriated, like you're fine. Like this is just, it, it only makes me angry and I don't even drink. So let me just say that. Like <laughs> I, but I know that we enjoy it. And that when you've had this break in a nine month, uh, period of, of enjoying a glass of wine, the last thing you need is to be like, well, what do I do now? And like, let me time this. And you're just trying to have a glass of wine and watch some Bravo. I had a client who loved below deck and she was just like, I just want to have a glass of wine and watch some Bravo. And I'm like, perfect. (laughs) You should. Um, but this, it's just one more way that we tell women that they can't actually live their life and be a mother. So these, these, yeah, these, like these things where it's like, well, you could do this. Well, we, lots of things could happen. It's this fear of you're right. You know what? We don't want to give that to our baby, but how about we trust women that they want to do what's best for their baby too. And we don't just say, no, or, oh my gosh, how dare you? Cause we love to say that to women. We mm-hmm. love to say, how dare you? Society and it's like, Wait, loves what? to shame women any way they, they can. love it. Yeah. And in motherhood and breastfeeding, it is rampant, right? It's that's why women look at me and they say, well, can I, or is this bad? And I'm like, who told you that there is a right and wrong to any of this? Because mm-hmm. there's not, there's mm-hmm. a what's right for you, but we love shame and judgment and it makes you know, whoever feel better. And then we have these women sitting here in the midst of this giant transition questioning, can I have a glass of wine and eat some salmon on a Monday night? Yeah. Love you, Hillary. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my, my client who loves problem. Um, but you know, those are the things. So that's a huge one. That's giant pump and dump is, is junk. I, I don't love that. Um, I also don't like the underlying assumption that you are forever tied to your baby and you can't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you have to start pumping right away because if not, you'll never get away. Um, babies in the early days really need their moms. And if you want to breastfeed, then yes, I would love to see you decide that we're going to do that solely for a couple of weeks until we establish our milk supply. And then we'll talk about all the rest, but I feel confident asking that because you also need to recover. You have a dinner plate size wound in your womb. You don't need to be going out to brunch (laughs) a week in. You need to be resting and not doing nothing, but respecting what your body just did. So the idea that, um, you know, you, you're just gonna, if you breastfeed, you're just never going to have a life outside the walls Mm -hmm. of your home is something that's sort of like an undercurrent that gets sold to women. And I think is a hindrance because that's not true. Um, you know, those early days of, of motherhood and parenthood, feel so long because everything is so new, but they're genuinely so short. Like, you know, I'm a mother to a 15 and a half year old and I can close my eyes and see his face on the second day he was alive. Um, and that is not old lady speak for enjoy every minute because every minute Mm -hmm. is not enjoyable, but Mm -hmm. it is to say that, um, I will never regret a moment spent 
with him in his infancy. Like mm-hmm. that's not something mm-hmm. we're going to get to the end of our lives and look back on and be like, I wish I wouldn't have spent so much time with my baby. Like that's just <laughs> not going to happen, but we yeah. convince ourselves that that's true in the moment. And it's okay if you need something else or you need a break or all those things, but we've got to keep perspective. So anything that makes you feel like you, you're now, or you are now tied forever to your home. Um, and this system of breastfeeding is also just a disservice. Something my mom has always told me is that if you're not taking care of yourself, you you can't take care of your baby. I love her already. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's so true. And you know, it's okay to need help to take care of yourself mm-hmm. because that's completely normal. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that we can do it all is false. So yeah, you are better at loving everyone around you that you love when you um, take care of yourself. That's true for all of us, I think. But that's really that's really wise. I agree, hundred percent. So what are some cases where you might choose not to, or might not be able to breastfeed? Um, I think medical indications, you know, like we said, it's, it's rare, but there's physical um, limitations. Sometimes, you know, when we have a prenatal breastfeeding assessment or consultation, we talk about health history. Um, Women with PCOS might have, um, a a hindered ability to produce enough milk, um, just because of what PCOS does during puberty, Mm -hmm. um, in creating, um, those systems for later lactation. PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome is a hormonal disorder. That's pretty common in women. Since it's a syndrome and not a disease, this means that women who have it could have any combination of its many symptoms, which include things like irregular periods, ovarian cysts, acne, weight gain, issues with fertility, And it can also contribute to problems with low milk supply. Being a woman is so fun. So I think some of those things can happen. Um, I think sometimes really what I see more often than not now is less. And it might just be because of my client pool, honestly, um, because I tend to get clients um, that aren't intensive breastfeeding cases because they know what I do and I do all the things. Right. So, um, you know, some lactation professionals will really do all the medical like things we're going to do supplemental nursing systems. We're going to do all these things. I get those cases less than other lactation professionals because I also do all Mm -hmm. the everyday things and Mm -hmm. the mental health stuff and all those things. So, um, for me, I would say sometimes it is, um, it is, it ends up being the, like the, the mental health portion. Like if, if this is too much for you in this moment, um, we're, it's not a hill that we're going to, you know, sacrifice ourselves on. Uh, like there is no, um, you know, this is a, a, a mom that does this and she deserves more credit than a mom that does this because of what you exactly just said that your mom said, when you are taking care of yourself, you take care of yourself, you can take care of everyone else. So I think that in my experience with lactation and breastfeeding moms, it actually happens to be more like I did this for this long and I feel really good about it, mm-hmm. but moving forward, we need to make a change because it's going to be better for me mental health wise. And I've had the opposite though, too, of clients who are like, no, I'm sticking with it. Cause like that is going to just, right. So I've had both sides, but honestly, like in my personal experience, professional experience, it really is just a decision to say, okay, I decided I was going to do it for this long. And now I need to be able to mother and, and mother the way that I want to the fullest ability and be fully present and whole. And, Mm -hmm. and this is where I'm going to make that shift. And so we, we talk about, okay, great. Like, what does that look like for you? And, and is that, you know, 
is that going well? How does that go? Are, do you feel better? Are we checking in? Mm-hmm. Um, so all, all of those things, I work a lot in that, in that regard with them. So this is a big one. And yeah. I think it causes a lot of debate. Um, and I know that my mom always said once teeth were involved, she cut us off. <laughs> I know where is, you're going. Yeah. You uh-huh. know what the question is, is uh-huh, there a time that you quote unquote should stop breastfeeding and wean your baby? No. Um, so again, it's personal preference. So mm-hmm. babies get teeth you know, the, and, and the worldwide weaning age is, is four years old, like the average. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends exclusively breastfeeding until six months and then weaning around one year. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization recommends breastfeeding until at least age two. And like April said, the average weaning age around the world is four years old. I'm sure this won't be the last time we visit this topic. So in America, we've decided that a year is like, we're like, okay, a year is our goal. Um, And some people go more, some people go less, but, you know, I really shy away from shoulds Mm -hmm. in general for, for, um, for so many reasons, but mostly because like you should do whatever works for you is my, is my answer. Um, Mm -hmm. So teeth are tricky. And you get bit and you go, Ooh, okay. (laughs) Um, but they're not impossible. So when you're talking about nursing a toddler, they learn toddler manners. They learn nursing manners. Um, they learn to ask, they learn that they get put down when they tug at your shirt or, you know, um, or it's not time right now. Um, so no, I think it's a really personal, a personal thing. Um, personally, I nursed my fourth, the longest by far, um, because there wasn't another baby and it ended up just being a comfort thing between the two of us. And mm-hmm. he was happy and I was happy and it worked well. Um, there was weaning in my personal life. Um, when another baby was coming, that was like a natural weaning method. So they were different ages. Um, and I think it, that's what it depends on. It depends on, is this your first baby? Are you intending to have another baby? Is it, you know, is this an emotional connection for you guys, you know, working mothers, that continue to pump and go back to work, love that reconnection time. So mm-hmm. to say, you know, well, now they have teeth, so you should be done, um, is, is, would be an emotional change for them when that's their reconnection time. So mm-hmm. really it's about, is this still serving both of you? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's okay. If one of you says no, it needs to change then. So it's a really personal decision. It Very. Like. Yeah. And it based, and it can change, you know, with each woman, with each pregnancy, with each child, it can be different. So I know you have just this world of knowledge. So this is going to be a hard question for you. I think if you could give just one piece of advice to a new mom, breastfeeding or otherwise, what would it be? Oh gosh. I want it to be so good. (laughs) You can, you can have a couple if you want. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Good. Cause I do. I mean, I just watch them like, and they're just so awe inspiring. Um, I would say, trust your instincts. Um, there you know, there's nothing that you can't change later. Uh, so what, if what's working for you right now works, then do that, but really just trust your instincts, look at your baby and trust your instincts. Um, because I think that, uh, when I say trust your instincts, it means like, don't Google all the things. Um, I've been saying April it lately. I'm like, just April it. And I have a client who texts me and she's like, I'm Apriling it. And I'm like, okay. Um, but because we can go down these rabbit holes that just lead us to lack of confidence. And really, if we just keep looking at our baby and say, um, you know, this feels good to me, like this feels right. 
um, then if it feels right, don't ask someone to tell you it's wrong, mm-hmm. right? Just trust it. Like, cause I think we go, oh, this feels right. And then we look around at the outside world, like this is right. Right. This is right. Right. <laughs> and then we hear a no and we go crap like, oh no. Yeah. And really we need to stop asking. We need to stop asking for permission to mother the way that we need to mother. Mm-hmm. We don't need permission. They don't need permission. I'm not giving them permission. That's not my job. I don't do that. I don't tell them what to do and I don't give them permission. I, I say, what do you need? And then they say, this is what I need. And I go, okay, well, I'll help you do that. Um, but we look too much for permission for all the things. Mm-hmm. So look at your baby, trust your instinct, instinct. And once you decide, you know, just do it, just yeah. like be in it and do the work and love your baby. And there's no one better than that at that than you. So you service the Columbus area, right? Yes. So if you live in the Columbus area, where can our listeners contact you or get, well, get I do virtual, I did a virtual <laughs> class, like we zoomed and we talked and I'm like getting so tech, like, you know, like tech savvy, <laughs> but my 10 year old daughter also helps me. Um, but <laughs> I did a couple of virtual classes. So I do that as well. And I love it. So I love virtual things, which came from the pandemic, but in Columbus, if you want to see my face and you want me in your house, I am at in this and then on Instagram as well on in this together I do stories from my car where I sing a little, which is very embarrassing, but came about very organically. I stopped. Um, at a stop I recommend light. though. They're fun to watch. <laughs> I did, I did yeah. a little stalking before we That's talked. So <laughs> I mean, I'm always in my car, like going to a client or taking kids places or whatever. So I love like being in my car, but I did it very organically. I just went stoplight stories one day and then it turned into <laughs> in my car stories. And so it's kind of always what, um, how I'm like telling stories about client visits and like what's happening. Um, so yes, in Columbus, if you want me in your home, that's where you find me. And then what's really exciting for Columbus people is that I teamed up with a pelvic floor specialist to cover all the things. So when you're in Columbus, you get visits with me, you get visits with Missy. Um, it's called the motherhood project, Mm -hmm. which I think is just so important because my dream is just to have this, like, this kind of center where like a woman going through this transition is like, okay, what do I need and where do I find it? Um, and, and, and I think that these are key things. It's, it's her mental health and transition, um, with me. And then what's great about Missy is she does pelvic floor, but she's also in it all about like, but how are you feeling? Um, so covering mothers in that way has been really exciting for me as far as being in Columbus. So yes, I will be all over Columbus for the people that need me and the families. ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm so ready. <laughs> uh-huh. What word do you use most often for breasts? Um, boobs with, with moms and babies. I use boobs a lot. I say they're boobs or I say breast and I say breast tissue, but I would say if I'm just talking, like I send the melon emoji and I say boobs. What is your least favorite word for breasts? Jugs. <laughs> it's just too much. It's just too much. Funny because it's probably it's milk related too. So. Yeah, I know, but like, but like it makes me think cow milk. And I'm like, mm-hmm. no, there's so yeah. much, it's so much greater than that. Do you remember your first bra? I actually don't. I mean, I'm sure it was my mom. I'm sure it was mortifying, like, oh, look at these. Um, because I think I was I was so young. I, was, I think I was like eleven. So I don't. I don't remember. I remember it being very closely tied to like not 
too much later getting my period. So I think it was Mm -hmm. very much like, okay, this is what we're doing now. These are all the things, but I don't remember like exactly what it was. I would have to ask my mom because I'm certain that she was right there. (laughs) What is your favorite thing or something interesting about your own breasts? Ooh, that's a really good one. Um, I thought about it after listening to previous um, episodes of yours because it didn't make the like arc to like, oh yeah, that's really important until I heard um, kind of people's breast stories. But I had cysts on my breasts or in my breasts. I had fibroadenomas that I found when I was 17 years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I was at my job and I moved my arm and went, what's that? Um, So I actually had three of them removed my senior year in high school. Um, so when it came to breastfeeding my own kids, I remember kind of being like, well, I hope these things work. And I had an amazing surgeon who was actually the father of a girl that I went to high school with, who I still remember Dr. Conyers. And he was so gracious and kind and wonderful. Um, he put my IV in when the nurse couldn't get it. Like that's literally something I still remember. (laughs) This was a long time ago. Um, but this idea that kind of what I said about this transition women go through, right? These were this and they were this before, and now I want them to do this. I think that probably stuck with me more than I considered before hearing you talk to other women about their breast experiences, because Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to have the doubt of, will this work? Is this, you know, going to go well for me? Uh, And then also that change for me of, um, you know, being a little scared in that moment when I was young, but not thinking, I wasn't thinking about my future babies and if I'd be able to feed them really then. Um, but years later it came back and I was so grateful that I could, I had this bigger appreciation for what my body could do. Um, so I think having that experience, um, you know, is, is really tied to how I see women Mm -hmm. face breastfeeding challenges for me in in a greater way. So thank you for that because I hadn't thought about it. You know, that was something that happened to me as a teenager. So I'd be like, yeah, I had this and, you know, I have, I had fibro, like I had really Mm -hmm. bumpy breasts then. And I had to do like mammogram things sooner than other women, um, because of it. Um, and I'm really good at checks and, and all of those things because of it, but I didn't ever think of how it was tied to like how I watch women go through their breastfeeding, like self-doubt and confidence and all that stuff. So, um, I actually was really appreciative of that. So thank you. But yeah, that was, it's funny. Um, It's funny. Actually, I had a similar experience in talking to, I've talked to so many people like prepping for this podcast and it just made me think about things with my breasts that I never even considered that like, even before I started this podcast, I was like, Oh, huh. There's a connection there. <laughs> Isn't that great though? It's yeah, so good yeah. when that happens, you know, cause it's you really get rewarding. passionate about things. Yeah. You get passionate about things and then you're like, where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, Oh, okay. Wait. And then it just kind of dawns on you. But like this idea that we get to know ourselves better by the way we connect with other people and hearing other people's stories. 100%. So cool. And that's what's so great about talking and finding voices um, like you're doing mm-hmm. is that like, what else can we learn? Yeah. Um, I forgot to ask this one, actually. What type of yeah. bra, if any, do you prefer and why? I am definitely a no wire girl from way back, probably started when I had babies. Um, but, you know, I go through, uh, it has to be comfortable. If it hurts, I'm out. 
Um, but uh, I would say I'm really a fan of the bralette lately because I have breasts that are no longer working breasts as far as like feeding children. So they've, they've gotten smaller and that's kind of nice. Um, so I would say I'm definitely a workout bra, like a sports bra in the morning mm-hmm. and then a bralette or something without wire for the rest of the day, depending on what I'm wearing. I am not a fan of the strapless. I'll do it. And it's like cute, but I still always fuss with it. I have, cannot find a, like, there's no such thing as a perfect strapless for me. The best one I've ever found coming from a bra designer, the my yes. absolute, the only one that I'll wear is the Wacol red carpet strapless bra. Okay. And I didn't design it. I don't know who designed it. (laughs) Like it's no, it's just, well, that's pure. Like I'm a, I'm a triple D right now. And it's the only one I'll wear. It stays up. It doesn't move like, okay. I'll have to look. I might need those in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. I will. I'll I'll send, I'll send you the link. (laughs) Perfect. I love that. Yes. That's the only one. So if you can change my mind, I'm open. I'm for it. I mean, I, I, it's, I wouldn't say that I'd wear it for more than like a couple hours, but if I have to go to a wedding or something like that's the one. Okay. I'm in. I'll try it. <laughs> what do you think is the hardest part of having breasts? Ooh. Them being something that draws attention to us, um, unwanted attention. I think that's really difficult. I think, I, you know, I have a daughter, I was young and had breasts and uh, when I was close to her age. Um, and I remember distinctly like doing the horn thing to truck drivers, um, mm-hmm. driving down the road. I remember my mom looking at me once and going, you can't do that anymore. And, um, that I had like reached an age where like it, it was not like a safe, like a, yeah, a safe yeah. choice because I was a young woman now. And I think that's the thing is mentally we're not there, but physically we can be. And, and that's hard. It's a hard uh, thing to navigate. And then it being the focal point of, of some sort of attention, but also being something that can serve us so well, like I see in my work, mm-hmm. I think can be a tricky thing to navigate, like sort of being a sexual object or, or, or used for your sexual pleasure, whatever that looks like. And then changing it to this, this function with your mm-hmm. baby in this role of motherhood can be a challenging shift, but it starts yeah. for us when we're girls and, and like, what is this for? What is this? Is it for this attention? Is it for this? Is it? And I think we need to make that messaging clearer to our girls um, about what that looks like. I agree 100%. Um, and last but not least, what do you wish those without breasts knew about breasts? I think that it's like, they're a lot to carry around sometimes. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm glad that these are enjoyable to look at and do whatever else with, but also like it's sweaty under here and like <laughs> I'm tired and bras are like, you know, great, but also like just get it off. So yeah, I would say yeah. that, you know, it's a body part that like, isn't just for decoration. My profession says that they're functional and amazing. Um, because breast milk is, I could go on about that forever. So I would just say that, you know, it's not like an arm <laughs> or, yeah. or, you know, anything else it, and it, and it changes so much, you know, so when we talk about a lifetime of your body, um, breasts so, show so much change. So be kind to them if you're not a breast owner and you love someone that has them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Be kind to they're your worth breasts. It. Yeah. Be nice <laughs> to them. Exactly. All right, April, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This was a fantastic conversation and we talked about a lot of fun stuff. Thank you, Nadia. I appreciate it. And I enjoyed it so much. I love what y'all are doing. We love what you're doing. Thank you.
The Very Breast Podcast Ever was written, produced, and recorded by Nadia Figueroa and Alyssa McHugh. Cover art by Alyssa McHugh. Opening music by Margaret Tran. Check her out on Spotify. For episode transcripts and sources, please visit our website at theverybreastpodcastever.com. Do you have questions? Corrections? Do you want to tell us your breast story? Get in touch with us on Instagram at theverybreastpod or email us at theverybreastpodcastever at gmail.com. If you like our podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, share with your breasties, and consider donating to our Patreon. Thanks for listening. Now go out and make today the breast day ever. Hey, it's me again. Do you want to tell us your breast story? Do you know someone who works with breasts in their career or has a story to tell us? Do you just have a funny story about boobs? We want to hear from you please DM us on Instagram or email us at theverybreastpodcastever at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show. See you next time, breasties. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast Fat Mascara here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.